This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. In the aftermath of the life-changing events of the past couple of years that we've all faced, some of us will have had to give that extra care and take that extra care of our loved ones. Now that comes naturally to some people, they're just caring in general and they always put others first. And if this is you, then just stop and ask yourself, how much time do I give to me? Is it balanced? It can be so easy getting so caught up in providing what others want or need from you that you forget about that equally important person in the bargain, yourself, and you're very important. Because if you spend all of your time giving and looking after others, and not finding that balance to spend time on yourself also, you can spread yourself too thinly and you'll be burned out before you know it. And no one wants that, do they? Now something beneficial to help you find this balance is therapy. I don't mind admitting that I've had my own times in the past where I've felt as described because I'm a looker after a me and I've found that taking a bit of time out and talking about stuff, even if it's to a complete stranger, has helped me no end. Therapy isn't just something reserved for those who've experienced trauma in their lives and are looking to rebuild themselves, not at all, it's an imperception that is. It can help you learn how to recognise your own limits and develop your own boundaries. It can help you make changes in a positive way. All that good stuff that helps you be the best version of you that there is and help you look after yourself as much as you look after others. If you're thinking of trying therapy from wherever you are in your life to help with that journey of self-discovery to make it the best possible life for you, then why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it works around you and your schedule because it's designed to be flexible and convenient. It's also easy to get the ball rolling because all it takes is just filling out a short questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist best suited for your needs. If you feel that that's not working for you after a time, then you can simply switch therapists no problem with no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Coming to you from North Wales's messiest spare room and from where each time around I strive to bring you those tales of true crime that I've sought out from the UK and Ireland and that have jumped out at me as being unfamiliar, perhaps long forgotten, but all that have the enthusiast written all over them. The I doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the member everybody warms to first, the true crime enthusiast cat, Pixie, is here with me, of course he is. And so are you folks, the kind and cherished enthusiasts that I do this for completely. Massive thanks out as ever for tuning in today. It always does mean the world. And I hope that as you have, then you join me and the Peaks for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So this time around then, I have had, shall we say, a bit of a file nightmare. Blame the bloody awful OneDrive where I work for this. But as a result, the episode that I've largely worked on all week, and the one that I advertised in the show's Facebook discussion group that would be coming this time around, will now be coming to you at a later date, because 
Half of it went missing and I couldn't retrieve it in time to record it here as I would have liked to. But it is coming, it's almost fully salvaged and I do look forward to you hearing it quite soon. Rather than bring you no enthusiast though, this is where having a back catalogue of Patreon episodes comes in handy. It's like some sort of true crime enthusiatility belt. Enthusiatility? Like that? We're having that? New word? Fabulous. And so what I've done is selected a tale from a couple of years back from the Patreon archives. I've cast a fresh eye over it and that I deliver to you here. So it will be a new tale for many. And for those who have heard it before, well, I hope that it's one that's worth a re-listen. I certainly think it is. On the subject of Patreon, I'm catching up here and thanking both the returning and new supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time for Lee McCarthy, Hayes Selby D, Jilly, Alex Morris, Leonie Warren, Joseph Cottrell, James McCulloch, Jacob Grunnett, Ian Russ, Charlotte, Stevie Tiller, Stacey Taylor and Gillian Hodson Riley plus Michael Webb and Lorraine Smith, who have edited their pledges, and PJ78, Pia Muller, Sue Ellen Behrens, Terry Burke Wallin, and Penelope Friday, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name there. What can I say? You have my extreme gratitude, folks. Thank you so kindly, and I hope that you've made a start on the full series plus of bonus tales that being a supporter brings you. Now, like the aforementioned, if you too would like to be hearing bonus tales such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, Predators in the Park, Suffer the Little Children, or the latest tale that's out, Murder Under Cover of War, with another tale coming soon, and maybe like the one that you're about to hear now, then to do so, like Ray Charles watching porn, it's not hard at all, simply head over to Patreon and seek out the show there, or you can just use the link that's in the episode show notes sandwiched in with the show's contact details, which will take you right to it. You can be hearing these and more quicker than the UK's Eurovision dream shatter. What an absolute load of old bollocks the Eurovision is, isn't it? And who knows, you may even be awaiting some show swag from me. And I do have some new swag coming soon, so watch this space. As I said a few moments ago then, due to unforeseen circumstances, this is a change to the scheduled episode, and for it I've reached into the show's Patreon back catalogue and selected a tale that still horrifies me as much as when I researched it some years ago now. A few series ago, I brought you an episode called Scarred, which looked at the horrendous crime committed against a man named Andreas Christophorus who was left with life-changing injuries after having sulfuric acid thrown in his face in what, perhaps even more tragically and horrifically, was a case of mistaken identity. If you haven't yet listened to that tale, then when you do, get chance, have a listen to it. It's one that will stay with you, Andreas's tale is, I've no doubt. When I was researching that, I was horrified to learn just how common these kind of abhorrent acts are today because it's just such a twisted and awful thing to do to someone, isn't it? To disfigure them, to leave them not just suffering horrendously at the time, but to leave them with a permanent and constant reminder of the horror and violence that was inflicted upon them. More often than not, it's a twisted act of perceived vengeance. 
but as you'll come to hear in the episode with the two accounts that you'll hear, that sometimes there are other more perverse reasons too. The two tales I discovered while researching Scarred that I just couldn't let go of, and we're off up to Scotland for. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a reach into the Patreon back catalogue of the show and for an episode I've entitled Disfigured. For our first tale of the episode, we're off back to the Bishop Briggs area of Glasgow and to the early 1980s to a crowded city centre pub on a Saturday afternoon. Amongst the crowds of drinkers in clientele enjoying themselves there that afternoon, the friends and regular drinking companions, there was one woman who stood out somewhat, who seemed lost. Though she was from the city born and bred, she'd been away from it for some time and upon her return, was struggling to find a place for herself, adapting in new surroundings to a different life from the one she'd once had. The woman, 40-year-old Anne Riley, had been away from the city because she'd spent the past couple of years in Her Majesty's Prison Court and Vale, which was at the time a relatively new women's prison near Stirling, following finally snapping and attacking her husband of 18 years, Peter, and killing him, following one savage beating from him too many. Now the courts had been somewhat sympathetic to the life of violence that it transpired Anne had led at the hands of her deceased husband and took into account these circumstances but had still imposed a prison sentence upon her. Now I did search but when and where the murder took place and however many years Anne served in prison I couldn't find it's not reported. Although due to her age of 40 in 1982 when our tale takes place and her having been married for some 18 years, she likely didn't serve any more than five years tops. But to go from a grim life to the grimmer reality that prison life must be, well, can you imagine, are you just swapping one hell for another there? When she came to be released from prison in the summer of 1982, Anne was starting again from scratch, having nothing. Any children the couple may have had are not mentioned, there isn't even a report of her having any close family of her own and being left a broken woman. But determined to pick herself up, however, Anne found herself basic accommodation in the Emerson Road area of the Glasgow district of Bishop Briggs, where bit by bit she began to gather items for a fresh start, home appliances and furnishings, that type of thing. And not knowing the area well, she began to frequent the many pubs in the Bishop Briggs area in the hope of making a few new friends, because she was a woman who desperately needed someone. The barman who befriended her in one of these sensed just how vulnerable Anne was from almost the moment that he met her, yet he did nothing untoward, and over the next couple of weeks, the pair bumped into each other a number of times in his workplace, or one or a couple of the area's pubs and social clubs until after about two weeks, they were on first-name terms, almost like old friends, and were spending several hours a time drinking together. It's unknown whether Anne confided fully in him about her past, especially her very recent past, that would be some bloody polar bear moment that, wouldn't it? But what can be established is that by the end of the second week of September 1982, Anne already considered the man, 
43-year-old Leonard Bowie a friend. Certainly enough of a friend to accept his offer of coming around to her house in response to her claims that she had several DIY tasks that needed doing. After all, he lived less than half a mile away from her in the adjoining Springfield Road was a former carpenter. So who better to fix the skirting boards, put up the curtain rails and other general repairs that needed doing in a new home? In fact, this was a proper jack-of-all-trades this one was. He was a former joiner, he was a former operating theatre assistant at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. He'd even in his youth been a hairdressing apprentice. So, on Saturday, September the 11th, 1982, Leonard and Anne spent the afternoon having a few drinks around the local pubs before heading back to her home where he'd agreed to do some of the odd jobs that she'd previously mentioned to him. Whether any of these were actually done that day or this was an empty promise, it's unestablished. But what can be established is that housekeeping and repair were certainly not at the forefront of Leonard Bowie's mind. Far from it. The tools he'd brought with him were certainly unsuitable. Glasgow police received a telephone call early that evening from a man who calmly asked them to attend a council property in the Emerson Road area of the city, telling them that there'd been a quote, an incident, and that an ambulance would likely be required. Only a short time later, a patrol knocked at the door of the aforementioned property, their initial scepticism that this was merely one of the many domestic rows that flare up over pretty much nothing like the majority of rows do and could be calmed by a word from officers rapidly disappearing, because the man who answered the door was covered in blood. He confirmed it had been him who had contacted them, and then calmly invited the officers inside and ushered them to the front living room of the property, where they were met with a disturbing sight. On the floor next to the couch lay the body of a woman, the occupant of the property, Anne Riley who, despite her appearance suggesting otherwise, was found to be still alive when one of the officers checked, but was unsurprisingly unconscious. Locks of Anne's blonde hair, which had until that afternoon been long and shiny, lay scattered around the small sitting room. Well, to say cut off would be a misnomer really, for it had been hacked off in great clumps, and a search revealed much more of it, placed in a plastic bag inside a cupboard. The set of hair clippers and razor-sharp penknife that had been used to do this lay on the arm of the settee, heavily bloodstained. Anne's almost complete scalp, sliced from her skull, lay next to these. You'd never forget that, would you? As Anne was rushed to hospital, Bowie was arrested immediately and admitted his responsibility, telling police that he'd taken the clippers with him to Anne's home, adding, it was in my mind to cut her hair because it makes one feel good. When asked to expand upon this, meaning if cutting hair had turned him on, he replied, Yes, I do get sexual gratification from stroking and cutting hair. Six months later, on Thursday the 24th of February 1983, Leonard Bowie pleaded guilty at the High Court in Glasgow to assaulting Anne and causing to a severe injury and permanent disfigurement. Mr Donald Mackay, prosecuting, told the court that when she'd been rushed to hospital on the evening of September the 11th the previous year, despite a battle, 
surgeons had been unable to regraft the scalp back onto Anne, resulting in, he said, she will be disfigured for life and will have to wear a wig permanently. Bowie, meanwhile, though he had admitted responsibility, claimed to have no memory of the assault, let alone a reason for it, telling the court, I must have had it in my mind to cut her hair. I do get sexual gratification from stroking and cutting women's hair. I remember picking up the clippers, but do not remember using the knife until I saw blood on my shirt and trousers. Before he was jailed for four years, the court heard that Bowie, whose brother it was claimed was a Church of Scotland minister, was a first-time offender, never having come to the attention of police any time before, and perhaps surprisingly, following examinations from psychiatric professionals, there was no evidence of him having any form of mental illness. I know, yeah, right? Yet he could not, or would not, explain the reason behind his actions. Following his early release from prison for the attack in mid-1985, Bowie left Scotland and travelled to later quote a police officer fairly extensively across the UK for several years, including at one point spending time in the London area. Now the full extent of his movements isn't known and can't be ascertained, but by the mid-1990s, following the death of his mother, he'd returned to his native Scotland. Here, he had a number of jobs which he held for short periods, at first while staying at a variety of addresses in Glasgow, before heading back over to the city of Aberdeen in the northeast of the country, a city Bowie was very familiar with, having lived there for more than 20 years previously. It was where, at the end of the 1950s, when Bowie was 19 years of age, he'd been taken on as a trainee hairdresser. Now, he was never destined to cut hair without going to the nick for it, seemingly, because he abandoned his hairdressing apprenticeship only shortly after he'd begun it, claiming that he didn't like the long periods of standing around that went with it. Kind of goes with the territory of being a hairdresser, doesn't it? Instead, he firstly opted for a series of low-skilled jobs, before finding in the early 1970s the job that he was to retain longest through his adult life working as an operating theatre assistant at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. It was also during this period that Bowie married, going on to father two children. However, the marriage was not a happy one, and by 1976 had failed completely. Now the exact reasoning or circumstance behind why it failed is unknown, but whatever it was, it led to Bowie's wife leaving him and taking both of their children with her it also not being reported as to what level of contact or access he had with his children following this. By all accounts, the failure of his marriage started Bowie into a depression and he began attempting to find comfort and solace in alcohol, which merely served to further damage his self-esteem. He headed down to Glasgow sometime after this, working at casual job after casual job and finding lodgings in a house in the Springfield Road area where he was living when he met, and eventually attacked, Anne Riley. So, by the turn of the millennium in 2001, the then 62-year-old Bowie had been living in a small upstairs bedsit of a run-down terrace property in the Devonshire Road area of the city's West End for the previous three years, working part-time as bar staff come dormant of a social club just over a mile away, the Portland Club, in Aberdeen's St Paul Street. 
Other staff and regular patrons there found him mostly a likeable, considerate and generous person, an easily recognisable figure who made attempts to cover his baldness by combing his last few remaining wisps of grey hair across his head. For UK listeners of a certain age, and with a long memory, think Rabsy Nesbitt in the Hamlet Cigars advert, that type of comb-over. When not here, he'd be at home quietly watching television, where his landlord from Devonshire wrote, Gordon Webster, later described him as, I quote, a genial old duffer, adding, He'd lived here for three and a half years, and he was what I would have said was a very good occupant. He kept himself to himself, and spent most of his time watching television. The only thing that could be remarked upon that punctured this dull, quiet existence was that Bowie was still prone to binging on alcohol, which when he occasionally drank too much of it, would make him argumentative with people. Many of these drunken stints had led to injuries for Bowie also, and he'd been left with the exquisite medical term of various holes in his head after several falls and scrapes whilst a bit too Friday and Saturdayed out. That wasn't quite all, as events were to show. On Sunday, August the 12th, 2001, 51-year-old Mary Mulady had spent the early afternoon drinking in the city centre pubs, familiar haunts for her, where after having a few, she got talking to a balding, middle-aged man who offered to buy her a drink. One drink became another, and pretty soon, heavy drinker Mary had accepted the man's offer to accompany him in a taxi back to his home, the offer of a few more drinks back there too good to resist while some reports claim that she'd equally been swayed with the offer of a free haircut. Whatever the reason, perhaps both, she accompanied the man, and once there a short time later, Mary's ordeal began. After plying Mary with more alcohol, Bowie, because this is of course who we're talking about here, isn't it? Not going to go off some random bloody stranger in a repeat of his actions 19 years earlier, had produced a razor and attacked Mary, beginning cutting off locks of her flowing white hair in actions that got more and more frenzied, despite her pleas for him to stop, and eventually which caused her to pass out from the pain. When she came around some 20 minutes later, in shock and agony, she touched the top of her head to find that a large portion of her scalp, from the front to the back of her head, was missing. In some places, her skin had been sliced down to her skull. Looking over, she saw Leonard Bowie calmly watching television. In shock and pain, and still feeling the effects of the alcohol she'd consumed, Mary could only think to try and get away from this man, sure that he would kill her, and managed to slip out of the room by saying she was going to use the toilet down the hallway. Instead, she was out of the front door and onto the tree-lined road, where she made her way back towards the city centre. Bowie made no attempt to follow her. A police officer, PC Neil Montgomery, was on duty that afternoon when he spotted a woman in some distress attempting to get onto a bus and went over to assist. The gravity of Mary's injury soon became apparent and the officer was soon requesting an ambulance to attend the scene. He later told BBC Scotland that it was one of the worst, most serious incidents he'd attended, saying She was in a pretty horrific condition. Flaps of skin had been cut on the top of her head 
which would have hung loose from her skull were it not for the fact that coagulated blood was holding the skin together. Stuff of nightmares indeed, that, eh? The attack left Mary requiring a series of skin grafts in an attempt to repair the horrific damage and deep cuts that had been inflicted upon her, which was eventually to measure an area of missing scalp some 8 centimetres by 7. Although they did manage to graft skin from one of her legs that was able to cover the wound and other cuts that were inflicted upon her, it left her severely scarred for life, with hair no longer able to grow on large parts of her skull. From a hospital bed, Mary was able to tell officers what had happened to her, but was unable to tell them where it happened and who had attacked her. So under the influence of alcohol had she been, she couldn't clearly remember these details. With Mary unable to recall these details, detectives had very little to go on, but nevertheless, inquiries were made around the Aberdeen area. Persons with a history of violence living in the immediate area of the city centre were examined, and one by one ruled out, and by a month after the attack, police were no closer to finding Mary's attacker. They eventually made an appeal about the attack on Mary Malady through the widespread press and the resulting publicity triggered a memory with someone, and he contacted police. The man knew Leonard Bowie, and more importantly, he remembered his past, the assault Bowie had committed back in 1982. Based on this, police arrested Bowie and made a search of his bedsit in Devonshire Road, where they discovered an array of eyebrow-raising, alarming items. The sofa and the carpet of his room were clearly heavily bloodstained, and in a bag in the cupboard, there were assorted locks of blonde hair taken from several people. Some of these were clearly Mary Mulady's, still having pieces of her scalp attached to the roots. There was also a large amount of hairdressing equipment present, safety razors, dozens of pairs of scissors and other tools of the trade, that sort of thing. The squalid room was littered with them. A detective on the case, Detective Constable Graham Mackey, later said he had an unusual amount of hairdressing equipment for a man with so little hair. Officers had also discovered handwritten notes of examinations, I quote, that Bowie had carried out on various females stretching back over the previous few years. Now mostly these didn't expand any further than detailing various hairdressing tasks that he'd carried out, but one of these notes that did detailed an examination that he'd carried out just a few days before, on September the 11th, 2001, a day that I'm sure needs no reminding of whatsoever, as if there wasn't horror enough that day. This time, the victim was a 59-year-old woman with Down syndrome, who for legal reasons could not be named. Bowie had befriended the woman, who was a regular visitor to the Portland Social Club, and over time had persuaded her to come back to his bedsit for a haircut, claiming that he was a fully trained hairdresser. The victim had indeed accompanied him back to his bedsit, where Bowie had washed the woman's hair in a sink and had cut it. But he had also, very deliberately, indecently assaulted her whilst doing so. When police later traced and spoke to the victim, she told police what had happened and that even though she had tried, she could not stop Bowie but was sure he knew she didn't want him to touch her in that way. 
September the 11th was also the 19th anniversary of his first known scalping assault on Anne Riley. When interviewed after his arrest, Bowie claimed not to remember the victim at first, then when it was established that he did know her, he claimed he wasn't sexually interested in her. He also pretended not to recognise Mary Mulady when police showed him pictures of her, and indeed, like he had almost two decades previously, claimed not to be able to remember anything about the incident, completely unable or unwilling to recall answers to many of the questions police posed to him. On the 2nd of February 2002, at the High Court in Perth, 62-year-old Bowie pleaded guilty and admitted assaulting recovering alcoholic Mary Mulady, causing a severe and lasting injury by Scalpner the previous year, as well as sexually assaulting the woman with Down syndrome after promising to cut her hair. Advocate Deputy Mark Stewart, prosecuting, described both assaults to the court telling how Bowie had ignored Mary's pleas for him to stop during the 20-minute assault and had used the razor to gouge out sections of his victim's scalp whilst cutting her hair. She eventually passed out from the pain, but managed to escape and get help, Mr Stewart told the court. She recollects him starting to take skin from her scalp with what she described as a razor. She described going into shock as if it was happening to someone else with her being unable to stop the accused. She felt she didn't have sufficient strength to prevent him, and he was ignoring her pleas. Defence advocate Francis McMenamin QC, meanwhile, told the court that Bowie could not remember what he'd done, and had pled guilty to spare the two victims he was accused of assaulting from giving evidence. She said Bowie thought of the woman with Down syndrome as a friend, and went on, he was fond of her, but did not know of her difficulties. He took the view that she was on the same intellectual level as himself. Miss McMenamin told the court that medical tests had showed that Bowie had, I quote, a fairly marked atrophy of the brain caused by alcohol abuse over the past 20 years, adding, This man is a quiet, reserved loner with very low self-esteem. Psychiatrists have put him in the dull to average range of IQ and he has become more depressed in the last few years since his mother's death in the 1990s. She continued that Bowie had admitted to psychiatrists who spoke to him after the attacks that he regularly fantasised about women's hair, a passion he had retained for more than 40 years, ever since he'd been a hairdressing apprentice. Though this post didn't last, the passion had, and as well as keeping some of the equipment from his job, he brought more brushes, scissors and razors from shops over the years, an increasing number of these in the years leading up to the attacks. Miss McMenamin said, There's no doubt that this is a man with an abnormal interest in hair. He admitted he thought a lot about women's hair and how it featured in his sexual fantasies. His fetish about hair stemmed from his interest in hairdressing when he was younger and he says that it's because he's a hoarder that he kept the hairdressing equipment. The previous offence was 20 years ago, but he has now established a pattern of offending behaviour. I can't say this is never going to happen again. According to medical experts, she claimed, Bowie would become more dangerous to women if his condition continued to worsen, 
and added that her client recognised that his sentence would reflect his victim's vulnerability. She furthered, He is indeed very remorseful for what must have been a horrific experience for these women, and he has expressed the wish to me that whatever treatment is offered to him, he is desperate to accept that treatment. Presiding Judge Lord Wheatley deferred sentence, telling Bowie, In view of the nature of these offences and your past record, it is important to obtain further psychiatric reports. But he did inform him that regardless, he was to be placed on the sex offenders register. When the psychiatric reports had been completed and Bowie appeared once again before him for sentencing on the 15th of March 2002, Lord Wheatley told him he had committed two extremely serious and horrific offences which required the judge to pass an exemplary sentence. He went on, I believe you set out deliberately to commit these offences and made the appropriate preparations. It is clear you remain at present an extremely dangerous threat to vulnerable women in particular, and given the opportunity, you are likely to re-offend in this way. This problem is likely to get worse rather than better in the medium term. It is also clear that your aggression towards women is related to a sexual fetish about hair, which is impossible to treat. He then sentenced Bowie to eight years in prison, and he was taken away to begin this sentence at the former Her Majesty's Prison Peterhead, which is today the Peterhead Prison Museum, following its closure as a prison in 2013. Following the verdict, several detectives who had investigated the assault on Mary expressed surprise that Bowie had been found not to be suffering from a mental illness, with one detective telling the Aberdeen Press and Journal, No normal, sane person could inflict that on anyone. When interviewing Bowie, you would think he was forgetting about these things and maybe he had problems. But by the same token, he may well be evil and it may all be calculated. Senior investigating officers remained convinced of the latter, however, and that although police checks nationally had revealed no further victims, they could not rule out the possibility that other people had been attacked by Bowie, unable or unwilling to come forward at the time, but who might now emerge as a result of the publicity. Indeed, they wouldn't be surprised if there were. Senior investigating officer Detective Inspector Peter Wilcox told the Press and Journal, He knew the type of victim he was after, someone who was vulnerable, who would probably comply with what he was going to do, and who would be less likely to go to the police, there was far more chance they would not come forward and tell us about these things. It was a case of, let me do your hair. That was what he wanted to be doing, touching, feeling, cutting off the hair. The pretext was to be socialising to be friends. We certainly could not say that we were satisfied there are no more victims out there. They could quite easily be, given that there are two victims we know of in August and September last year and between 1982 and 2001, there was nothing. I can't explain that. It indeed makes you think, doesn't it? Now Bowie was interviewed by police following his incarceration after a check of the files revealed two earlier hair attacks on women in 2001 in Armadale in West Lothian. A 38-year-old mother was left severely traumatised as her ponytail was cut off by a middle-aged man who accosted her from behind and who dropped a lock of long blonde hair, 
different to the victims and believed by detectives to be from another near to the scene. However, Bowie denied all responsibility for these attacks and was never to admit to any other hair assaults on women. He now never can either, for just 18 months into his eight-year sentence, in September 2003, Leonard Bowie died, aged 64, in an Aberdeen hospital following being admitted there from Peterhead Prison. A disturbing account to begin with there, and you have to think that this guy has done this countless other times though, don't you? If this is such a fetish and such a kink for somebody that they physically scalp someone, disfigure them, simply to possess their hair, then I doubt, seriously, that there is an almost 20 year gap between such crimes. If it's what floats your boat, it's what will always float your boat, isn't it? At the time of his 2002 sentencing, it was reported that Bowie was also at the time accused of attacking a third Aberdeen woman, Anne Rulinski, but this charge was dropped after he pled guilty. Now frustratingly, and there's little enough to research about Leonard Bowie as it is, believe me, but I was unable to find any further reports about this particular offence, and so can't comment on the exact circumstance or severity of it, nor can't imagine it to be likened to the assault upon Anne or Mary or the unnamed woman, because it would seem unlikely that charges so severe would be dropped. Well, you'd hope not anyway, wouldn't you? And I must stress, whatever the circumstance to it, that's not me trying to lessen the offence against Anne Rulinski in any way. Severity is measured on an individual level after all, isn't it? But that's three attacks that police know of within a year. And if this guy moved considerably all over the country from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, and he sought out vulnerable women as targets, those having perhaps learning difficulties or problems such as alcoholism, who may not have felt able to come forward to report what had happened, who perhaps had even since died without ever telling anyone, who knows just how many customers the demon barber had. That was so nearly half the title of this episode. I proper tussled with calling it the demon barber and something else, I tell you. And the second tale, obviously, that was nearly called something else also. For the tale this time, we remain in Scotland, this time heading to the capital city of Edinburgh. 55-year-old Louise Duddy is today the proud mother of two adult sons, as remarried and has a markedly different life from the one that she could have had many years ago, one she's had to adapt to over the past 30 years. She's slim and tanned, her hands are elegant and manicured, she has a kind nature and a wicked sense of humour. She's perhaps today even a grandmother, and if she is, then Louise undoubtedly dotes on her grandchildren. But heartbreakingly, for however much she may love them, Louise will never have been able to see them. She can't, because Louise has no eyes to see them with, left blinded and horribly disfigured, the handiwork of her ex-husband. Where her left eye should be is merely the outline of its socket, covered by a sliver of skin and a tiny watery drop, almost like a permanent tear, which has settled in one corner. The eyelids of her right eye, meanwhile, are fused together, her eyebrows are missing, part of her nose has melted away, and her lips are burned, dry and blistered. Her tragic story is as follows. 
Born in Edinburgh in 1965, Louise seemed destined for a life on the catwalk. A pretty girl from a young age, by her early teens it was apparent that Louise was growing into a striking looking young woman. A regular beauty queen that the title she was afford awarded for this and the part-time modelling job she gained reflected. As the 1970s gave way to the 1980s, this could really have been Louise's decade this. Attractive, well-liked, having the proper world at her feet and her choice of career in mind, hairstyling, for which she had a trainee position in following leaving school and for which she showed some aptitude for. And then in 1981, age 16, like so many girls of her age, Louise found herself with an older boyfriend, a 24-year-old named Gordon Modiak. At first, the bad boy image that Modiak presented attracted Louise, for Modiak certainly wasn't a saint or anything, though his tough guy image and swaggering manner was very much more him trying to pass himself off as some sort of big shot triple hard bastard than the actual short-assed petty thug and thief that he was. It was exciting for her, a boyfriend with a car with ready cash, and for some time they were happy. Modiak was protective of her, shall we say, but at first Louise was flattered by this. Indeed, when she fell pregnant just a year later, the couple were overjoyed, and Louise really thought she'd found the man of her dreams. The icing on the cake, following the birth of their son Dean in 1982, was when she and Gordon married later the same year. But Modiac's protective nature continued, intensified, and pretty soon you could swap protective for possessive. Everywhere Louise went, he would want to know. How long she was to be gone for, he would want to know. Well, he wouldn't want, he demanded to know. If he didn't like the answer, he wouldn't even remonstrate with her, he would just use violence. He would regularly, obsessively, falsely accuse his beautiful wife of being off seeing other men behind his back, and despite Louise's denials, the beatings would continue. Modiac soon began dominating where Louise could go and who exactly she could see, and began isolating her from her friends and family, which the terrified young woman was forced to comply with, too afraid of her violent husband to ever dare go behind his back. Occasionally, Modiac would come across all remorseful and apologetic, giving Louise the old, I'll never do that again, I'm a changed man now, all that load of old bollocks, you know, before after a short time, the cycle of violence would merely start up again. But it's fair to say that the marriage was doomed from very early on, while it's no kind of relationship whatsoever, if one lives in constant mortal fear of the other seriously injuring them, is it? I know I've said it before on the show, but I despise any form of domestic abuse or violence whatsoever, and categorically, there is never any excuse for it. No one makes you do it at all, and even just once, is one time too many. So it continued in this vein for the rest of the 1980s, Louise confiding in friends on the rare occasions she was allowed to see them, that she had a premonition that Modiac would one day kill her, or at the very least seriously life-changingly injure her, which on occasion he'd come close to. The beatings had worsened in severity over the years, and on one occasion, Modiac had even stabbed Louise in the leg, and refused to allow her to go for the medical treatment for it that she really should have had. So this very real fear of Louise's continued, even after the couple had another son, Ryan, in 1989. 
1989. But following the birth of their second son, Louise began to gather something from somewhere, and in early 1990, after years of abuse, Louise finally left Gordon Modiac, taking the couple's two sons with her. There was no going back to him in her mind, despite at first the pleas from him, then the threats, and Louise soon filed for divorce from him, finally wanting to be free of Modiac. Her solicitor, Linda Welsh, was so horrified after hearing the catalogue of abuse Louise had suffered from him over the years, some of which she could evidence with physical scars, that she immediately filed for and was granted a court protective order banning Modiac from coming anywhere near Louise or the two boys. By November 1990, the decree Nysai had come through, the kids were in her custody, and Louise was finally free of Modiac even able to enjoy a fear-free Christmas that year, as Modiac was spending the festivities in prison, a short sentence he'd received as a result of him breaching the appointed court order and threatening and harassing Louise. But Modiac, blinded with rage that his possession Louise, as he really saw her, was now no longer so, becoming obsessed with the idea of the attractive young woman, still striking looking and still only 25 years old, starting again in a relationship with another man. So he decided from his prison cell, if I can't have you, then I'm going to make sure no one else is having you, because I'll make sure nobody would want to. By February 1991, Louise and her two sons were just beginning to adapt to their new life, just the three of them, and had moved into a property in the Slateford area of Edinburgh. Her ex-husband had only at the beginning of the month been released from his prison sentence for breaching the court protection order and Louise was finally under the impression that his time away may have given him time to think and give up on his harassment, not wanting to receive another custodial sentence. He was the last thing on her mind as on the afternoon of Wednesday the 13th of February she and baby Ryan collected Dean from school in the, in the battered orange metro she'd managed to buy for herself and on the way home, stopped to collect some shopping from the shops in the Hutchinson Parade area of Slateford. When Louise was done, only some 10 to 15 minutes later, she loaded the shopping into the boot of the car, alongside the pram, placed Ryan inside in his carry seat, and then loaded and fastened Dean in the rear behind the driver's seat. She didn't hear the figure approaching the car, the figure that Dean had seen as they drove down the street some minutes before, a friend of his father's that he knew as Kelvin, and Louise hardly had time to register even seeing him as she turned around, ready to get into the driver's seat. But Louise was destined to live with that moment for the rest of her life. The following contains disturbing and graphic description of a crime. Without warning, as Louise turned her body preparing to sit in the driver's seat of the car, the figure who had approached the car, a 32-year-old unemployed martial artist and basic scumbag named Kelvin Greenholsch, threw a pint beaker of liquid filled to the brim in Louise's face before sprinting away out of sight. It took a split second to register, but then Louise screamed in agony and rapidly went into shock, her vision all but disappearing where the liquid had entered her eyes. It fused and blistered the skin around her nose, mouth and lower face, as well as scarring her arms and legs where the corrosive liquid had dripped through her clothes. 
Where it had eaten through them is more accurate to say. It had burned a tongue, burned a throat, it had even burned the enamel off her teeth. Because a pint of concentrated sulfuric acid to the face will do that to a person, sure it will. Some of the acid even splashed onto Louise's children, injuring them, and the person who'd orchestrated the whole thing had waited, watching the entire attack in a hired car parked nearby, before speeding off with the person he had hired to commit the attack. Horrendous that, isn't it, eh? There are no words, really, to describe that, are there? As Louise was rushed to hospital and her children taken into protective police custody following a medical examination upon them, an inquiry immediately began and very rapidly the bog-standard actions of any investigation, a look at the victim's life, threw up the prime suspect behind the attack, Louise's ex-husband, Gordon Modiak, who had only been released from custody for threats against her eight days before. Modiak was traced and arrested two days later, attempting suicide by swallowing two grams of heroin he had concealed upon him in a cling film packet, following him writing a bleating suicide note in which he begged forgiveness for what he'd done, saying in it that death was the only way to end this terrible situation for him. However, he was rushed to hospital for treatment and his life saved, and once arrested on suspicion of the attack, had indeed soon admitted hiring someone to do so. However, he claimed that he felt sick at the thought that Louise had been so badly injured when all he wanted her to have was, I quote, a wee burn. Unreal that, isn't it, eh? You're all heart, mate. You really are. Modiak also named his accomplice, and Kelvin Greenhalgh was arrested the same day at a station road home in Armadale in West Lothian for the attack but denied all responsibility. Both men were jointly charged for the attack upon Louise, as well as Greenhalgh facing charges of theft of a container for acid and obtaining acid by fraud from an Armadale jeweller on February the 11th or 12th and were remanded in custody to await trial. When the trial began at the High Court in Edinburgh on Wednesday the 12th of June 1991, it was only Kelvin Greenhalgh who issued a plea of not guilty to the charges he faced. Gordon Modiak had the previous day admitted all of the charges, and sentence was deferred for him following the completion of Greenhalgh's trial. Advocate Deputy Edgar Price opened by telling the court that the possessive Modiak, seething that his wife had divorced him and torn up by jealousy over a perceived relationships with other men, was determined to rob his ex-wife of her striking beauty. The jury heard how Modiak had come to the idea of burning her face with sulfuric acid and had hired an acquaintance of his, martial arts expert Greenhalgh, to carry out the attack, who had agreed, swayed by the promise of a £3,000 fee that Modiak was offering for him to do so. The first witness to give evidence was Louise Duddy herself who bravely stood in the witness box for 40 minutes the same afternoon and showed the court what had been inflicted upon her. Now there are several photographs of the horrific injuries that Louise suffered in the attack, the terrible scarring that she's left with, that I invite you to have a search for. They do make for graphic viewing, I warn you, but have a look, and if and when you do, just try and imagine that a supposed human did this to another. I can't see the humanity in someone who can do such a thing, personally. 
Louise stood in that courtroom on that Wednesday afternoon and told of the endless months that she'd spent in hospital, failed skin graft after failed skin graft attempted to try and repair her face, as well as the battle to save her sight. At the point of her testimony, she could distinguish nothing more than a faint chink of light, and despite being seen by top eye specialists and undergoing grafts to her eyes, there was nothing further that they could do to prevent her sight from debilitating further. Senior eye surgeon Geoffrey Miller from Chalmers Eye Pavilion in Edinburgh later told the High Court, Louise Duddy has received the best attention for her eyes, but the prospects are extremely grave. The whole eye tissue is so destroyed that no surgery can restore vision to her eyes. It will not be long before she is 100% blind. That is unfortunately true. What a thing to have to come to terms with, eh? Heartbreaking and horrendous, that, isn't it? Louise told the jury as she removed the dark glasses and protective face mask that she wore to reveal her face. I am now registered blind. That's my eyes. The acid that was thrown burned my eyes out. There were no eyes there. What would you even say to that? Several other witnesses gave evidence over the nine-day trial, including Dean Modiak, who told the court that he saw a man he knew as Kelvin stood near a bush in Hutchison Parade, then approach the car and throw something in a jar at his mother as she got into the car. He described how he felt something hot hit the side of his face, followed by a sort of burning, which he himself spent a month in hospital recovering from. He then showed the court a four-inch scar that he'd been left with on the side of his face from the acid. Pensioner Grace Paxton, meanwhile, told how she'd seen a man that she identified in court as Kevin Greenholsch, wearing what she described as an angry expression, hanging about in Hutchison Place a few minutes before she heard, again I quote, those terrible screams. She distinctly remembered the expression he had on his face being one of anger. She also remembered that he was carrying a jar of some kind. Gordon Modiak himself gave evidence on the fifth day of the trial, telling the court that he had admitted planning to injure his ex-wife, along with Greenholsch, because he was, I quote, resentful of problems that she'd caused him and that he wanted to teach her a lesson. He claimed Greenholsch had agreed to do so for a sum of £3,000, which Modiak had intended to raise by selling his car, and that on the day of the attack, the two had driven around the Slateford area in a hired car, looking for Louise's metro. After two hours, they'd sighted the car, and Greenolsh had then gotten out of the vehicle and signalled for him to move away, which Modiak claimed he'd done, parking in the next street. He then told the court that only a moment later, he heard piercing screams coming from the next street, before Greenholsch leapt breathlessly into the car, saying, That's it done. I heard the screaming, but I did not see the assault, said Modiak, claiming that he would never have, as he was, I quote, squeamish at violence. Can you believe this guy, eh? For what? When his suicide note was read to the court, Modiak told Mr. Price that when he found out the severity of Louise's injuries and that his kids had been hurt in the attack, he wanted to die. The acid attack was not meant to damage her badly or to harm them at all, but just to give her a wee burn. 
bit more than the job done there, I would say. Greenhalgh, meanwhile, told his defence counsel Derek Ogg that he'd been paid to act as a driver for Modiac, but he knew nothing about the attack until he'd read about it the following day. Modiac had told him he was looking for the car of some men who had ripped him off over something, and when they'd spotted the car, Modiac got out and Greenhalgh had picked him up later. In the early hours of the following day, Friday, February the 15th, Modiac had arrived at his house and threatened him and his partner, Cakes or Modiac, saying that they would be shot if they spoke against him, claiming that one phone call would be all it took to make this happen. Modiac also told him to remember that he was involved as well, and if they were arrested, then he would tell police everything. In response to this, Greenolch claimed he had grabbed him and called him a filthy scumbag and a sick bastard for what he'd done, and the two had scuffled, but ultimately he'd been forced to comply, believing Modiac's threat to be serious. I never had any choice, it was either do it or get shot, he told the court. However, Senior Investigating Officer Detective Inspector David Halliday told the court a different story the one that Greenolch broke down in tears telling at the end of his tape-recorded interview following his arrest. Now in this interview, Greenolch had denied being involved in the attack. He claimed that he wasn't in the area at the time and had not seen Modiac since the end of 1990. However, after a cup of tea and a few fags, Greenolch made a voluntary statement admitting his involvement, claiming that Modiac was behind the attack. He told how Modiac had come to his home and offered him £3,000 as well as £100 to hire a getaway car and a jar of acid that he claimed had come out of a battery and that he told him to throw in Louise's face, claiming that it would just give her a small burn. The reason? He claimed Modiac had told him it was because Louise was seeing other men and had put him in jail. Detective Inspector Halliday told the court that in his voluntary statement, Greenall should have repeated this claim that Modiac had threatened to have him shot if he didn't, claims which Modiac had dismissed outright when he had given evidence. In his closing speech, emphasising the horror of the attack to the court, like as if they needed that I'm sure, Edgar Pryor said, This was a hellish crime. Louise Duddy has been condemned to a living hell. She is condemned to live the rest of her life scarred, physically and emotionally. She is destined to lead the rest of her life at the end of a white stick. Even hearts of stone would have wept in this case. They certainly would, eh? On Thursday 20th of June 1991, after a nine-day trial, it took the jury less than an hour to deliver a unanimous verdict of guilty of all charges and passing sentence on Modiac and Greenholch presiding Lord Maclean told them that no room for leniency and no distinguishing between the two would be made. In his sentencing remarks, he went on, In the long catalogue of crime with which this court has had to deal, it is, I have to say, hard to find one that is more cowardly, more wicked and more devastating in its results than this one. From the evidence, and only from the evidence, I believe that you both knew the effect that concentrated sulfuric acid would have if it came into contact with human skin. You must, therefore, have known what would happen if it was thrown in Louise Duddy's face. 
From the photographs of what we've seen of what she was like before this assault, it is obvious that she was a very beautiful woman and only 25 years of age. I think it reasonable to conclude that the object of this attack was to destroy that beautiful appearance. It was obvious to all of us who saw her give evidence that you had conspicuously achieved that object. Between you both, you have ruined her appearance. You rendered her virtually blind. The prognosis is that she soon will be 100% blind. You have wholly blighted her life. None who saw her giving evidence will ever forget the pathetic sight she presented. You can imagine, can't you? Both Greenholsh and Modiac bowed their heads as they were jailed for 20 years each for the attack, and though both did subsequently appeal the length of their sentence, each appeal was dismissed later the same year. Ten years after the attack, it emerged that Louise had in the ensuing years moved on with her life, living for several years with her sons and a new partner named Tony Lipscomb down in Paynton in Devon. But this relationship eventually broke down and she returned to Scotland in 2000, finding new love later that year with a man named Duncan Reed, an IT expert and part-time scoutmaster who was instructing his son Ryan, who was responsible for mediating the couple together. What at first started as a friendship blossomed into romance, and on his 32nd birthday, Duncan proposed to Louise, who happily accepted. She said at the time, Everything has happened so quickly. We only got together five months ago, but we are really happy. Duncan is everything a woman could want in a man. Intelligent, considerate, clever, successful, and my friends have told me he's good looking. He's also very romantic. When he proposed, he went down on one knee and gave me a gorgeous platinum ring with five diamonds in it. Even more importantly, he's absolutely brilliant with my son, who simply dotes on him. Good, eh? From such darkness, some light does come. But the spectre of Modiac was going nowhere and was still hanging over her. The Sunday Mail newspaper reported in January 2003 that Modiac, who was at that time hoping for parole, having served more than half of his sentence, had paid burglar David Craig, who spent 10 months in the cell next to Modiac's in Glenachill Prison, £150 to trace Louise and to take photographs of her house for him. Craig later told the Sunday Mail. He wanted the pictures so that he could send them to Louise from inside the prison. He knew the message would be, You can't hide from me. Wherever you are, I'll find you, and I'm getting out soon. He is obsessed by Louise. He despises her, and he wants to get his own back. He wants to terrify and intimidate her, and I think that would probably scare the life out of her. He can't get her out of his mind, and he is really vicious about it. Modiac is a complete lowlife. All he wants to do to Louise is hurt her even more, even though she's lived with this terrible act for almost 12 years. He can't stand the thought of her with anybody else, and used to talk about her relationships with this guy or that guy. He's also under the impression that she got a fortune in compensation, hundreds of thousands of pounds. He's very bitter about the thought of her having money when he has none and actually believes he is entitled to some of that. He's a big risk to Louise, I have no doubt about it. Even if he doesn't hurt her in a physical way, he will take the greatest pleasure in torturing her by playing horrible mind games. 
When Craig was released, he met Modiak's elderly mother and collected the £150 fee, but insisted that he simply pocketed the cash and made no attempt to trace Louise or photograph her home for Modiak, adding, I told Modiak I would do it to keep him sweet and because I was happy to take his money, but there was no way I would have done what he wanted because he's a complete scumbag. I hope they keep him in for a lot longer as a result of this. Now they didn't, and when the story broke, it sent a shockwave of fear through Louise. She later said, Life has been hard for me since this happened. It's not easy being blind and bringing up two boys. I had to tie a bell to the youngest when he was small, just so I could tell where he was. Of course I think he's a serious threat to me. Look at what he did to me in the first place. This has shaken me up something terrible and really given me a fright, but what can I do? I just have to hope he stays away, even though I know that won't happen. I've always dreaded his release, and I can't believe that's about to happen. The time has flown by so quickly. A detective closely involved in the original police investigation agreed, warning the press that Modiac's obsession was as fierce as ever, and that he posed a serious danger to Louise. The officer said, Modiac had an obsessive personality. Even after Louise divorced him and had interdicts ordering him to stay away from her, he would turn up wherever she was. He would make sure he saw her and she saw him, and then he would drive away. If he still has the same obsession, and sending someone out to take photographs of where she lives would suggest that he has, then I have no doubt he's still a threat to her. Yet Modiac was due to be freed in the near future, because by law, he was considered to have served enough jail time at two-thirds of his sentence. The executive confirmed, I quote, All prisoners sentenced to more than four years must be released after serving two-thirds of their term, whilst those serving less than four years released after serving half. Yeah. It prompted an angry reaction from Tory Justice Minister Annabel Goldie, who said, there have been too many cases like this where, for example, rapists have been released to rape again. If the alarm bells hadn't been ringing before, then they should be now. Damn right they should have, but they may as well have been bloody turned off. For in November 2004, Gordon Modiak was released from HMP Glenachill and immediately jumped on a train to England amid fears that a contract had been put out on his life. A police source said at the time, There have been stories about contracts out for Modiac and people looking for revenge. Now these people didn't find him, more the shame, but the press did and Modiac told them, I only want to get on with my life. I'm out of prison now, but I'm still trapped. I'm made out as this monster. I've been portrayed as a nasty person, but it's not true. I want to leave it behind. I got time for a horrific thing, but it's in the past. Yeah, okay. But Louise, however, was bitter when she heard Modiac's comments and feared it wouldn't be long before he returned home and tracked her down. She said, He feels trapped. He wants to have a future. What makes him think he deserves a future? Look at what I've had to live with every day. He's wrecked my life. I know Modiac jumped on a train and headed for England the moment he got out of jail, but he'll not settle down there. He's probably practicing his driving skills for a wee trip back up here. 
I've got to be so careful for my safety. I've got two kids to protect. I've got no eyes. I've got to have people around me to help me all the time. I've been through hell the past 14 years and I don't want anything to start again. Now indeed, reportedly, nothing ever has started since. Not with Louise, anyway. Following his release, Modiac moved to Blackpool and changed his name to Gordon Wood in a bid to start a new life. But in March 2013, he showed his true nature, when on the evening of the 16th, he'd spent the evening drinking at Mark Kelly's bar on Talbot Road. At around 10.30pm, he was outside the venue, heavily drunk and smoking a cigarette, and was asked to move away from the door by Romanian bouncer Daniel Ursoy. Daniel later recalled, I asked him to move along into the smoking area, and he started shouting at me, saying I was a foreigner, and then left. Before leaving, Modiak spat at the bouncer, following comments that were allegedly made by Ursoy that Modiak might be more comfortable at one of the nearby gay venues. Whatever the comment, it must have rankled with him, however, as some 90 minutes later, Modiak returned in a disguise, having gone home to change into a new set of clothes and wearing a hat. CCTV footage later recovered shows Modiak walking past the entrance to the bar, sizing up his intended victim, before doubling back. Daniel continues, I noticed there was this guy acting suspiciously, and then I clocked it was him. Then he walked up to me and shouted, Do you remember me? Modiak then pulled a blade out and lunged at Bouncer Daniel, who put up his arm to defend himself. Thankfully, the knife narrowly avoided him, merely ripping his sleeve. Daniel recalled, I don't know what was running through my mind at the time. It just happened so quickly. I remember thinking, Oh God, I was so lucky the knife missed me. He then just tried to walk away, so me and my mate jumped on him and held him down. While we were doing that, I could feel the knife against my leg. On Tuesday 12th of November 2013, Gordon Wood, as Modiac was now calling himself, was convicted at Preston Crown Court of attempted grievous bodily harm with intent and possession of a bladed article. Now bizarrely, during his trial, Modiac claimed he had merely pretended to stab the bouncer in order to draw attention to his continuing grievance over his conviction for the acid attack, however the bloody hell that works like, I'm not sure. But good news, this time he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Passing sentence, Mr Justice Knowles told Modiac that he could quite easily have killed Daniel Ursoy, saying, You are an extremely dangerous man, you present a serious risk of harm to members of the public. You have no concept of how people see you, including the jury. That was evident with your defence where you said that you pretended to stab the man so you would be arrested and get the attention you deserve for what you call the miscarriage of justice which happened in Scotland. Modiac was told he would have to serve 5 years and 124 days before he can apply for parole but the now 64 year old still remains a serving prisoner to this day. A knife attack seemed to run in the family, for in July 2018, his nephew, 41-year-old Gary Modiak, left 25-year-old financial services office worker Peter Moyes for dead 
after repeatedly striking him on the neck with a Stanley knife in an Edinburgh pub. At his trial in March 2019, the High Court in Glasgow was told that Gary Modiak flew into a rage after learning online that his ex-girlfriend Lynn McGarry was involved in a relationship with Peter Moyes, whose father, who was also called Peter, was tragically stabbed to death in a horrific knife attack outside another pub in 2004. Until then, the breakup had been amicable, but Modiak had turned nasty after learning online that his former girlfriend was seeing Peter. He became abusive and threatening, and told her that he was going to destroy her new relationship. Weeks before the attack, Gary Modiak had called Peter, stating, See what happened to your dad? You're going to get ten times worse. You are getting it. I'll take a jail sentence for you. I'll do a jail sentence standing on my head. I've nothing to lose. On the evening of July 7th, 2018, Peter was in Edinburgh's mousetrap bar with a friend when Modiak came in with another man and walked straight up to him. Prosecuting Johan McLean told the court, He took a knife similar to a Stanley knife from his trouser pocket and suddenly slashed it across Mr Moy's neck. Had he not received such immediate medical attention, his life would have been at risk. Only good fortune prevented more serious injury. Now it was pretty serious enough. Peter needed emergency surgery and 10 pints of blood to save his life, suffering substantial wounds to both sides of his neck and nerve damage to parts of his face. The court heard how he spent four months off work after the attack and is now affected by stress, anxiety and depression, plus requiring further plastic surgery for his multiple injuries and therapy to help him cope with the aftermath of the trauma. Modiak, meanwhile, had been arrested immediately following the attack, and both DNA and CCTV evidence later linked him to the assault. Sentencing Modiak, who already had a long criminal record, having been jailed for three years in 2003 for assaulting and severely injuring another victim, and a further 11 months in 2009 for drugs offences, Judge Lord Arthurson jailed Modiak for seven and a half years after he pleaded guilty to a charge of attempted murder, telling him that the jail term would have been 10 years but for his guilty plea. This attack was unprovoked, sustained and murderous in its nature, he told Modiak. Now there are pictures of the horrific scar that Peter was left with following the attack available to see. And you can tell from them that Modiak was all for killing him. It was merely sheer fortune that Peter didn't die. And in echoes of his uncle's horrific crime of almost 30 years earlier, it was all because he felt that something he saw as his possession was moving on with her life. Some people, eh? You just couldn't bloody make them up, could you? Kevin Greenhalgh, meanwhile, I bet you'd thought we'd forgotten that shite, okay? was released in 2005 and returned to the Edinburgh area where he began selling drugs from his high-rise flat in Moncrief House in the Craigor area. In early 2018, the 59-year-old pleaded guilty at Edinburgh Sheriff Court to being concerned in the supply of cocaine from June the 25th to July 24th of the previous year and being a drug user himself, received a 12-month drug testing treatment order from Sheriff Frank Crow. 
isn't that one of the best names that you've ever heard or what eh? in september 2018 greenhouse was due in court for a review of this order but reportedly failed to appear further investigation found his flat to be boarded up following being raided a few times to quote a neighbor of his and local rumor has it that greenhouse is now on the run from a dangerous drug gang after crossing them the neighbor who unsurprisingly did not wish to be named explained to the daily record there was a younger guy bullying kelvin to sell crack cocaine from his flat kelvin wasn't earning enough and was using drugs himself so this guy brought up two guys from down south to stay in the flat to make sure he was selling his flat had been taken over and the police had raided the place a few times eventually he couldn't take it anymore and he left these drug dealers are now after him it's not something that you think will end particularly well that really is it yet can you really muster up any sympathy because i can't two proper chilling and horrifying accounts this time around then isn't it and with each of the perpetrators that i've mentioned here both the modiacs green hulk bowie each one of them is exactly where they need to be today removed from being able or never again able in bowie's case to inflict the kind of horror on people that they did to the likes of anne mary peter and louise because how any of these didn't lead to their deaths let alone disfigurement is beyond me and just try and imagine what each of those mentioned went through in each attack not just the initial pain and fright but in the weeks months and years following them learning to live with the scars you're left with to cope with the trauma of such an attack and in louise's case it goes beyond cosmetic damage having to completely change your life adapting to the loss of your sight and every single time you touch the scars it being a constant reminder of the evil that some people can commit i found each account horrific enough and as i said earlier in the episode i can't believe bowie only did this twice with an almost 20 year gap in between it's too specific and extreme a fetish that is but louise's story especially got me i found it heartbreaking and infuriating too because people who do something like that both of them i truly believe deserve to spend every waking moment of the sentence passed upon them incarcerated in mortal fear that the same fate could befall them at any time never knowing when never knowing if but always having that very real fear that it could sometime every second such a thing as poetic justice what do you think I would love as always to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode Disfigured, which wasn't the episode I had planned for this time around, but a back catalogue is that for a reason, and which you could do so, should you wish to, in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links. I always look forward to hearing what you think, wherever you wish to do so normal service will be resumed for the next time around i can guarantee and i hope that you can join me and the peaks for it soon with that like milk that has been left out of the fridge for ages i'm off and all that remains for me to say is that i am actually curating now for any listener written episodes from the show so if there's a case that's lit a fire under you 
perhaps it's one that's taken place quite near to where you live and you have some knowledge about it. Perhaps it's even a bit of a personal connection with you. If there's anything that you would like to hear on The Enthusiast that you think is a good fit, please get in touch with me through any of the show's social media details. I will always get back to you. All that remains for me to say then is that I thank you each and all for joining me in the world's smallest cow, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.